Okay, I want to move on to the next case. Steve, can you present your patient? This is a 57-year-old white female who initially presented approximately nine years ago with a stage 2 breast carcinoma. This was originally diagnosed in New Jersey, I believe. At that time, she underwent a modified radical mastectomy and had a 2.6 centimeter primary tumor with two of 12 positive axillary lymph nodes. Estrogen and progesterone receptors were positive. There was no HER2 testing at that time. She was treated with adjuvant classic CMF for six months and then was placed on adjuvant tamoxifen for five years. She did well until approximately two years later when she developed a chest wall recurrence in the mastectomy scar. This was excised and was consistent with recurrent breast carcinoma. She received chest wall radiation therapy and was placed on Arimidex hormonal therapy. She was on that for just about one year, and at that time she had moved to South Florida. I saw her at that time, and she presented with a protruding superior sternal area. Imaging studies were obtained, and she had a mass growing, probably arising from the internal mammary nodes, which was causing erosion of the sternum. At that point, she was taken off of Arimidex and was treated with Fazlodex with a loading dose. She was only on that for approximately three months, and reevaluation revealed further progression of the mass in the sternum, but no evidence of disease outside of the chest. She was then tried on XMS stain, again with no response. She began to complain of some hoarseness and restaging evaluation at that time revealed increasing mediastinal adenopathy as well as new bilateral pulmonary nodules and the development of new hepatic metastases. Went ahead and rebiopsied the sternal mass at that point, which again confirmed breast carcinoma, still estrogen receptor positive. HER2 testing by FISH was negative. And could you kind of paint a little bit more of the overall picture of the woman at this point? Up until this point, all along when she was progressing through the various hormonal therapies, other than some discomfort from the protruding sternum, she was active and really feeling well, doing her normal activities, really was asymptomatic with an excellent performance status. And then she rapidly was clearly sick. She came in hoarse. She clearly had a dyspnea. She was not symptomatic at all from the liver lesions, no weight loss or abdominal discomfort, nausea. But clearly she went in a fairly short period of time from being totally asymptomatic to someone who was clearly ill. So Ruth, the only chemotherapy she'd had at that point was prior adjuvant CMF, correct? That is correct. The only thing she's had is adjuvant CMF. Sounds like she's pretty hormone unresponsive. How do you think you'd be thinking through the choice at this point? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you certainly have tried all the hormonal therapies and appears, unfortunately, she is hormone refractory at this time point. It sounds like she, her performance status has deteriorated quite rapidly. So, I mean, I would probably consider this a patient for, I think, paclitaxel plus bevacizumab would be a reasonable option if her brain was clear. That's probably what I would give her. Obviously, I think she's given the deterioration in performance status. It's reasonable to think about any combination chemotherapy, be it gemcitabine, Paclitaxel, but my first choice here would be Paclitaxel, Bevacizumab, given her deteriorating performance status. And, you know, obviously the fact she hasn't had much chemo before would suggest that hopefully she will get a good response from this. 
What about adding another chemotherapeutic agent on top of the paclitaxel and Bev, for example, capecitabine? Well, you know, there was some data at San Antonio looking at docetaxel, capecitabine, and bevacizumab from the NCCTG. There certainly was activity, but it did appear to be reasonably toxic. Certainly, there are many, obviously, bevacizumab trials out there. I know there's certainly one with gemcitabine, paclitaxel, and bevacizumab out there. I think Is there data on that? No, no, this is an ongoing trial. I have to say, off a study, I think I would just go with the weekly paclitaxel and bevacizumab. And we, we know it works. We've got a randomized study showing it works. So I wouldn't be inclined to add in more chemotherapy with the paclitaxel bevacizumab. John, again, reimbursement, payment issues aside, what do you think the best choice would be in this situation? I think she would be a candidate for almost any chemotherapy option you wanted to share with her, and then it becomes a choice among the various agents. And the first question we always ask is, does order of chemotherapy matter? Does it matter whether you start with one agent and switch to another, or should you use your big guns up front? And to my knowledge, and maybe others around the table can correct me, I'm not, it's not clear to me that it matters in what order you use your palliative chemotherapy options in hormone refractory metastatic breast cancer. So I would tell her that there are very active combinations, including paclitaxel, bevacizumab. You can even combine anthracyclines and docetaxel. But I'd tell her that we could watch her liver closely. Obviously, with this external mass looking at us, we could probably tell you on a week-by-week basis whether she's responding to something as simple as capecitabine. And it would be one of my initial choices in palliative setting because these women don't lose their hair. They don't have to spend one day a week in our chemo suite getting drugs. They can just take their pills and come in every three weeks. And certainly in the center I work with, some of these women travel from immense distances to come in. So those kind of issues often play very highly. So I generally have the discussion, we can be aggressive, and I can give you maybe a 60 to 70% chance we can control this with some very aggressive options, but there's no proven survival advantage to starting with those as opposed to something as simple as capecitabine. And my choice is to use 1,000 milligrams BID, for 14 days rather than the package insert dose. Alone or with bevacizumab? I would use it alone. Basically, if you can watch the liver biochemically or imaging, perhaps, you know, six weeks and again in three months, I don't think you've got much to lose. And if it's not benefiting the woman, then you can pull out the big guns. And in Canada, we do have an issue with bevacizumab reimbursement at present. So we would be looking at taxane-based chemotherapy. I guess the one thing about this is this kind of gives you the feeling that you really, it's maybe not your typical metastatic case. This sounds like a little bit scarier, a little bit I need more of a response. Is that the way you were feeling, Steve? Yes. I mean, it was a very dramatic change. And again, having seen her four to six weeks earlier, I mean, it was a clear, rapid progression of disease, a clear change in the characteristic of someone that had fairly stable to perhaps slight progression of the chest wall disease to someone who clearly was systemically ill in a fairly short period of time. Matt, how would you be thinking this through? It just reminds me of the complexity of EL-positive breast cancer, doesn't it? It would be fun to get hold of her original block, her chest wall metastasis block, and then finally the more contemporary biopsy and try and work out what had happened to this tumor to make it so resistant. It's almost like a rictus transformation (laughs) if she'd had lymphoma. I mean, I think that you'd have to sit down with a patient and examine and see or herself. I mean, I wrote down, I think, eight or nine different options for this patient, all of which would be reasonable. And obviously, I think both those things would be appropriate things depending on your own clinical judgment at the time. In terms of exhausting endocrine therapy options, that's the one thing that I just wanted to make a little point about. 
We rarely use sex steroid therapies to treat breast cancer these days, but we didn't mention Megase and we didn't mention estradiol. And we're restudying estradiol at our center and basically finding that in AI-resistant patients, it's basically as active at 6 milligrams to 30 milligrams as anything else that's been mentioned. So not in this patient, I understand what the pressing need is, but a patient who has a low symptom burden and non-visceral crisis disease, reconsidering megase or estradiol is still a reasonable thing to do in my book. Which one? Estradiol or megase? Which one would you pick? Well, I don't know the answer to that. Currently, we're studying estradiol with an NCI-sponsored investigation, so that's what I'd give them, but I wouldn't say that megase would be a bad thing to give either. So, Steve, can you follow up with what happened? This was right around the time that the ECOG study was being reported and also the data with gemcitabine and paclitaxel. Unfortunately, her insurance company rejected administering bevacizumab, and therefore... What specifically did you want to treat her with? Bevacizumab and paclitaxel, basically the ECOG So protocol. you had seen that report, and that's the way you wanted to treat her? Correct. And she clearly did not have the resources to be able to pay for that out of her own pocket. So we elected to treat her with gemcitabine and paclitaxel, and she had a dramatic response. Basically, the sternal lesion flattened out. The pulmonary nodules, liver lesions completely resolved. And we continued that for a period of six months, at which point she was developing some peripheral neuropathy. Restaging, again, revealed essentially other than some residual soft tissue changes within the peristernal region. There was no other evidence of disease and elected to stop the chemotherapy at that point. And interestingly, actually put her on megase at that point, thinking, well, the tumor was still estrogen receptor positive, and maybe, why not? not? I mean, as kind of thinking maybe there might be a maintenance. Unfortunately, that did not last very long. Within approximately three or four months, again, she became more hoarse, and uh, again, on repeat scanning, had some new pulmonary nodules. At that point, placed her on single-agent capecitabine. And she remained stable on that for approximately six months. And then actually just as of our last visit, about a week or so ago, she was progressing again. How did she do with the two chemotherapeutic regimens that you've given her in terms of side effects? Very well. She tolerated the gemcitabine and paclitaxel extremely well. Really had very little toxicity, was immensely thrilled with how well she was feeling. As said, towards the end of that six-month period of time, she began to experience some cumulative peripheral neuropathy from the paclitaxel. What would you be thinking, Ruth, at this point? And where are we in terms of being able to look at tissue? I mean, this lady has this intriguing thing that's happened, which she had a great response to chemotherapy, and yet now she's progressing in terms of trying to understand why this patient's different than another, or this patient's tumor is different than another, and what do you think you'd likely treat her with at this point? Well, I mean, I think she certainly, because she's got very accessible tissue to biopsy, it would be very interesting to look at that, I think. I think the one thing that is interesting with these hormone refractory cancers is sometimes you do get a little bit of an increase in her to new. Now, I know she was fish positive. Did you ever test for by protein? For her to new, or did you just do fish? No, she had it by immunohistochemistry at the time of her original chest wall recurrence, and then by fish when we rebiopsied it, but we did not actually do the. So, I mean, sometimes, you know, you just see a little bit of an increase in her to new protein, and at least preclinically, there is a little bit of data suggesting that even though it's not fish amplified, you know, there may be some benefit of her septum, but I think that's something obviously you would address in a trial. In terms of what I would do with her now, I think her performance status is still fairly good from the sound of it. It's certainly better than it was. I mean, she's probably certainly a good candidate for 
perhaps a trial with a novel agent because I think if you give another chemotherapy agent at this point, you may again get some stabilization disease, but unlikely to get the kind of response that you saw before. What about chemo, Bev, assuming that it could be obtained? How would you feel about it at this point, which would be third-line yeah. therapy? I mean, that's a good question. I think we don't know the answer to that. Obviously, we have that one trial of Kathy Miller's, which was in the second-line setting with kepcitabine plus or minus bevacizumab, which, although it was no different than progression-free survival, the response rate was higher in the combination. So... I think we don't know that answer, and I think it needs to be addressed maybe a little bit better in a trial. I haven't personally done that very much. The thinking, I think, is at this point that if you're going to use map using it earlier is better, but I don't think we know that conclusively, and that's one of the reasons why I would have tried to give her the map like you did in the first-line setting. It's all well and good to kind of look at clinical research data, but you have a patient who's scared to death, has these nasty kinds of tumors, and it's maybe personally compelling to consider Bevacizumab. John, what are your thoughts about using it in a third-line setting like this? Well, she's not had anthracyclines. And here I am putting on my other hat and pointing out that the one thing she's avoided throughout her course is probably the second most active class of chemotherapeutic drugs we have of all. So we could look at single-agent naked adriamycin. You can even give it weekly. It's far better tolerated in terms of myelosuppression and nausea. Hair loss does eventually happen, but it doesn't happen 21 days after the first dose. And for this kind of a woman, I've seen you know, such people benefit tremendously from just adriamycin-based therapy. So I wouldn't hesitate to wade in with an anthracycline, assuming her LV function was adequate. And only after that would I really consider investigational new agents. Now, my experience with vinorobine, navalbine, after taxane therapy has generally been dismal in the absence of HER2 amplification and concurrent trastuzumab. So vinorobine seems to be a thing that we do just because there's something to be done when we've exhausted everything else, but I can't honestly say I've convinced myself I've ever done anyone any good with the drug. So as monotherapy... Post-taxane, it's quite an inactive compound, has been my experience. And similarly, gemcitabine, I know she's had it already, but if you leave it to monotherapy fourth line, there are even reports of 0% response rates in phase two studies. So we're dealing now after anthracycline exposure, and she will inevitably progress with Hail Mary therapy. And there are some interesting Hail Mary therapies out there that are pretty non-toxic. There are regimens of oral cyclophosphamide and oral methotrexate that can be given <laughs> chronically. There's even IV CMF could be revisited, although probably not likely to be as well tolerated or as effective. But obviously, this is why you want a phase one trial department in your center. Matt, what were your thoughts about Hal Burstein's data on the metronomic cyclophosphamide, methotrexate, and bevacizumab? Well, I have to say, I've used so-called metronomic therapy in metastatic disease with these old-fashioned generic drugs with occasional benefit. And I think in the right kind of patient, it's worth considering. My preference for an anthracycline would be doxel. And on trials here at my center, she'd receive a rapamycin analog. What are you thinking you're going to do, Steve? I actually just saw her three days ago because she'd had prior chest radiation therapy. I'm awaiting the results of cardiac evaluation. My thought was liposomal doxorubicin as my first choice. My second thought was to perhaps go back to a taxane since she did have a near-complete response to the combination. And it actually has been almost a year since she had the gemcitabine-paclitaxel combination. So if, for some reason, her rejection fraction is not adequate. That's my backup. Which one? Her neuropathy has completely resolved at this point, so I think I have the option of either weekly paclitaxel or an every three-week taxotere. What about NAB paclitaxel? That would be another option, but again, 
with her insurance coverage. I'm not sure I would get that through either. 